Father, this evening as we again contemplate the concepts and the principles found in your word, Lord, I recognize that I need all the help I can get for the themes, the concepts, the character of Jesus. These are far surpassing my ability to communicate adequately to your people. Lord, I am a bottleneck in this process of communication from your throne to the hearts of your people. And so I pray that you will supernaturally somehow reach into the depths of each heart, that you may open the floodgates of heaven, that it will simply fill each heart. And I simply ask that I won't be in the way. And that somehow your truth may make an impact in our lives tonight. And may we learn to have the mind of Christ. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before the meeting, one of you told me and said, Oh, I wish we could go a little bit deeper in the subject that we started this morning during Sabbath school. Well, that's exactly what we're going to do. So let's pick up right where we left off in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 actually will review a little bit where we left off this morning. Hebrews chapter 11 is the chapter known as the Hall of Faith. It is the detailed uh, uh, chronicle of men and women of faith. And we read at the end of that chapter that these all obtained a good report through faith. But yet they received not the promise, but God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. And we put that in the context of the idea of the harvest at the end of time. Jesus cannot put in the sickle to harvest the righteous before the harvest is ripe. And the ripeness of the harvest is the maturity, the character of Jesus being reproduced in his people. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 gives us this picture, this analogy of a race. The work that we as God's people at this period of earth's history, actually all throughout history, is described as a race running down through history, running towards this goal. And the goal is not a physical destination, although the Bible does promise a physical city to be our eternal home. But that is not physically the race, the destination. That's not the sum of what this race is about. This race is a race of character development. It is a race of accomplishing the will of God on this earth. And we are to look to Jesus. And so tonight, the title of our message is Obedient Unto Death. And I want to take some time now to contemplate these verses in Hebrews chapter, chapter 12. So let's read them together. Hebrews chapter 12, let's begin in verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. 
and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Let's think about this verse for a moment. What, what is needed in order for us to run and, by implication, to finish this race? Moving backwards up through the verse, it says we need to run with patience. The author of Hebrews is very forthright. He's not saying that this is going to be an easy race. It's not going to be a short race. It is not a race for the faint-hearted. It is a race that requires patience, endurance, the fortitude to be able to resist and withstand and to be constant despite pressure and opposition. Patience is needed to run. But it also says that in order for us to run successfully, we need to get rid of some things. Two things in particular. It says, let us lay aside every what? Weight. And the sin which does so easily beset us. What does that mean? Well, sin is the transgression of God's law. Sin is immorality, rebellion, not doing what God told us to do or doing what God told us not to do. Those are sins. Activities, behaviors, what have you. And it is clear to us that if we are to run this race and to be like Jesus and to make it to heaven at last, of course, right? Sin has to go. But what is this thing that is... What does Paul mean when he says, lay aside every weight? When you're running, if you're bogged down with weights, what does that do to you? Slows you down. I would submit to you, I would suggest that sins, if we have sins, it trips us up so that we cannot even run. But weights are different. Weights simply slow us down. They may not be wrong. They may not be immorality necessarily, but they just simply are not what's God's best for us. Have you ever considered that maybe sometimes what God asks us to submit to Him, to give to Him, may not necessarily be sin? Yes, God demands and He requests us to get rid of all sin in our lives. Yes, but even more than that, sometimes God asks us to give us things that in and of themselves are not wrong. But they slow us down. Keep that thought in mind as we continue Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, what are we looking at, particularly in his life? Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We should look to Jesus. He is the author and finish of our faith. He is our example, but specifically, Hebrews here mentions a specific, specific aspect of his life that is to be our example, that we have to contemplate and look at. It is the cross. He despised the shame. And he 
endured the cross. But let's look at verse 3. Verse 3, for consider him. Isn't that similar language in the previous, with the previous verse? Previous verse says, looking unto Jesus, and the next verse says, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. At the surface, this is basically what the verse is saying. He's saying, look at Jesus. He was mistreated. He suffered hostility. That's another way that word contradiction is translated. The hostility of sinners against himself. And the author of Hebrews admonishes us, so don't be weary. Don't faint in your minds because of your master's Jesus Christ. And sinners treated him in such unjust ways. How do you think you're going to be treated? Don't faint. Endure. Because that's what Jesus did. But I want to think a little bit deeper into this one verse. I actually like that word, contradiction. Yes, hostility is is just as good, but that word contradiction gives me the idea of there's a certain irony in the sufferings of Christ. What do I mean? Let's look at a verse that we touched on this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. As we're contemplating this idea of consider him who suffers such contradiction of sinners against himself. 1 Peter 2 verse 21, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Verse 23, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. This is an aside. Just an aside, I will come back to this verse. Just came to mind. You heard that my favorite Bible character is Daniel. You know what his name means? God is my judge. And the book Daniel is all about being prepared for the end times, particularly the judgment. And how do you do that? You commit yourself to him who judgeth righteously. That's what Daniel means. God is my judge. And Daniel simply was being like Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. He committed himself to him who judgeth righteously. No extra charge for that one. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, we see Jesus leaves us an example, an example of suffering, an example of suffering even in the midst of which he did not speak any sin, no guile was found in his mouth. What was the context that Peter is talking about here? Peter is saying when he was reviled, he did not sin and revile again. When he, he suffered at the hands of sinners, he didn't threaten even though he could have. Have you ever had the experience when you've been falsely accused, framed, maligned, smeared, whatever the word you want to use to describe it? There's no there's no good word to describe just how painful that is. Particularly 
when you are falsely accused or misunderstood, whatever word you want to use, by the very people you're trying to help. I don't know how many of you have gone through this experience, but I believe it's a lot of humanity. Human nature, we are, we are all crooks. And perhaps we have done this to other people, but when we're on the receiving it, it doesn't feel good. Sometimes, maybe we get into these ex experiences where we're trying to help these people. We're doing our very best, or we're, we're just innocently minding our own business, and someone falsely accuses us of something that we know did not happen, or it was the facts were twisted, and we're standing there, and we say, no, wait, that's not what happened. And they say, oh, why are you being all defensive now? <laughs> and then, and then you, you stand back, and you're like, but that's, that's really not what happened. Oh, so you're denying it now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but wait, let me explain. Uh, so you're saying I'm wrong? You're, you're disrespecting me now. Have you ever had that experience? Jesus, if you read the story of him being bumped from, from judgment hall to judgment hall, from Pilate to Herod to Caiaphas and Annas and all of these farces of a trial, that's exactly what happened. Jesus, he was right. He was innocent. He was framed. He was falsely accused. And he would stand there and these false witnesses, they would contradict each other and he couldn't say anything. Contradiction of sinners against himself. He suffered, but he threatened not. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. That's what it means when Jesus suffered the contradiction of sinners against himself. Back to Hebrews chapter 12. It's painful sometimes to sit back with your hands tied and watch the cheaters win. For those of us who have a very strong sense of justice, it drives us to the point of nearly losing our Christianity. But Jesus is our example. When we are mistreated like that, what are we to do? Commit ourselves to Him who judgeth righteously. Because one day God's going to set the record straight. And our duty is to be righteous, even if it means that we don't get to be proven right right now. Hebrews chapter 12, let's move on to verse 4. And for the remainder of the time, I want to focus on this very brief but extremely poignant verse. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Does anyone else find that verse very challenging? We have not yet shed our blood yet in our war against sin. What does that tell us regarding the effort and the painstaking diligence and vigilance it requires to be like Jesus? You know, in verse 1, what did we read about the sins that so easily beset us? What are we supposed to do with them? We are supposed to lay aside those sins. 
And in verse 4, a couple of verses down, it seems to suggest that sometimes casting off those sins requires a little bit of pain. Maybe a lot of pain. Maybe it, it even involves bloodshed. That's tough. That's challenging. That in order for me to be like Jesus, it may involve excruciating pain. How can this be? How are we to not lose all hope? <laughs> How are we to actually live up to this high calling? How is that possible? I mean, why don't we just pack up our bags and go home? I mean, this is impossible. I mean, the mind of Christ resisting and the blood striving against sin, this is ludicrous. But the Bible says, look to Jesus. Amen. Let's look at Jesus right now. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. As we continue to try to wrap our minds around this incredibly challenging concept of resisting unto blood, striving against sin. Let's look at Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. Let's start there. Jesus, speaking of Jesus, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I want to focus on the last part of verse 8 right there. We understand that Jesus did indeed shed his blood on the cross, did he not? And I praise the Lord because that blood, that the, the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, is the only means... The only substance that has any merit to grant me salvation. Without the blood of Christ, my faith amounts to nothing. My righteousness is as filthy rags. The only hope I have is in the blood of Christ. Amen. But it says here, what led him to that death? He was obedient unto death. What that tells me is that Jesus' death on the cross was in obedience to God's will. He resisted to the shedding of his blood. Or I could put it this way, he obeyed God to the point of shedding his own blood. Jesus did it. But we look at the story of the cross, and it seems like that's it. Or at, at least in this verse, that's it. The death of the cross. He shed his blood. He did what God wanted him to do. Let's go a little bit deeper than that. Because let's consider the final moments, the days or hours of Christ's life. Was the cross really the first point where he actually committed himself to go all the way to shed his blood for a sinful race? It was in Gethsemane, wasn't it? I find this quote in the book Desire of Ages, page 690, paragraph 2. 
turning away. Jesus sought again his retreat and fell prostrate, overcome by the horror of a great darkness. The humanity of the Son of God trembled in that trying hour. He prayed not now for his disciples that their faith might not fail, but for his own tempted, agonized soul. The awful moment had come. That moment which was to decide the destiny of the world, the fate of humanity trembled in the balance. Notice the next sentence. Christ might even now refuse to drink the blood, the cup apportioned to guilty man. It was not yet too late. He might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might say, let the transgressor receive the penalty of his sin, and I will go back to my father. And then Mrs. White asked the questions. Will the Son of Man drink the bitter cup of humiliation and agony? Will the innocent suffer the consequences of the curse of sin to save the guilty? Will Jesus go through? Will Jesus accept this cup of bitter woe? Will he? Let's think for a moment. What actually is it that Christ was struggling with in that hour? What was the temptation that Jesus had to deal with in that hour? Would it have been wrong? Let's put it this way. Would it have been wrong of Christ to say, I am not going to do this? Would it have been wrong for him to say, Father, I don't want to suffer separation from you. Father, I will not drink this cup. Would that have been wrong? According to this passage, it was not yet too late. Christ could have done that. So in other words, the decision of Jesus is not what we sometimes think of as, do I sin or do I not sin? The decision of Christ is, do I do what God has said that I should do versus what I wish could be done? It was choosing God's will versus doing what was absolutely justifiable, but not God's will. You see the difference in that struggle. It is not as simple as just black and white. Do I smoke? Do I not? Do I cheat? Do I not? Do I lie? Do I not? That's not the struggle with Jesus. It wasn't, will I break the Sabbath or will I not? That's not it. Christ... The choice was not whether between an immoral, gross sin versus staying out of that sin. It was simply, will I accept God's will or will I simply settle for what is okay? Will I go ahead and follow God's will into every particular or will I simply let sinful man suffer their own consequences? The decision was not a decision between a clear sin of a, against the Ten Commandments versus righteousness. But what does Jesus say? Desire of Ages, page 690, same paragraph. The words fall trembling from the pale lips of Jesus. Oh, my Father, 
if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, the last four words are, Thy will be done. There is something that Jesus loves more than fallen humanity. There is something that Jesus values more than saving you and me. Before you pick up your stones to stone me, think about this. Jesus cares more about God's will than humanity. But praise the Lord that God's will is for him to save us. Amen. I'm thankful for that. Because if that was not God's will, Jesus would not have done it. Because you notice when he was struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane, the decision was not, oh, I love these human beings so much. God, please let me do this. Yes, Jesus does love us. I'm not discounting that fact. But the struggle is, Father, what would you have me to do? And Jesus, at that moment, you have to understand the struggle is so much deeper than that. It wasn't just, Father, will I do this or will I do that? It was more than that. He recognized that, Father, you do realize, if I am to follow your will and to give myself as a ransom to die on this cross, I'll be separated from you. Father, I don't want to go through that. That was what was rupturing the heart of Christ. That was what's oozing blood out of his pores. He was thinking, Father, in order for me to fulfill your will means I have to be separated from you? I have to suffer your wrath? Father, if it be possible, please let it pass from me. Jesus was more concerned about the will of God even if that will means separation from the one that he is trying to obey. He resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and the sin is simply, will I follow God's will? And at its core, the temptation is simply, this is God's will for me, will I follow it? Jesus knew that following the will of God, he would be mistreated. He would suffer the contradiction of sinners against himself. He would be cast from judgment hall to judgment hall. The people he would try to save, the irony of ironies, would be the ones that crucify him. His beloved disciple Peter would deny him three times. He knew all of those things. He also recognized that he was going to have to suffer the wrath of God even though he didn't deserve it. And he would have to die an undeserved death. And he would have to suffer that separation from the Father that he had been one with since eons and eons past in eternity. I don't even claim to begin to comprehend how that must have felt. But some say, oh, but Jesus knew he would be raised. He knew that there was going to be a resurrection on Sunday morning. I mean, what's the big deal? Desire of Ages tells us, page 753, Satan with his fierce temptations wrung the heart of Jesus. 
The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. That adds an added dimension. Jesus at the, in the garden when he was praying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What Jesus was saying, I will follow your will. Yes, even if it means I will be mistreated by the ones I came to save. Even if I will be framed and falsely accused and betrayed by my own disciple. Jesus is saying, I am willing to die for fallen humanity. I'm willing to suffer the wrath of God. And yes, I am even ready, if it is your will, to be separated from you forever. When Jesus was on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't think we understand what those words meant to Jesus. Of course, the Father was there and the Father suffered with Christ, but he had to veil his presence because Jesus had to drink that bitter cup alone. But Jesus resisted unto blood, striving against sin. That is the mind of Christ. To be willing to be spent, to be willing to give up everything, even eternity with Jesus himself, that is having the mind of Christ. To resist unto blood, striving against sin. Are we willing, are we ready to die for those who want to kill us? Those people that frame us and falsely accuse us and corner us and, you know, pigeonhole us and don't let us get away, are we willing to die for them? That's the mind of Christ. Are we willing to suffer separation from Jesus even for eternity? If that is his will, that is the mind of Christ. Does it, even if it means giving up our pride of opinion, losing our face and looking bad, having to do some things that although is not a direct transgression, is not the best, we have to give those things up, are we willing to have the mind of Christ? to resist unto blood striving against sin, even if God's will is for us to go through an experience in which we've, we experience rejection from God. Because is that not what the time of trouble is going to be? To go through an experience that is so trying that we feel as though God is our enemy. Do we love Jesus that much? Are we willing to sacrifice and to resist unto blood, striving against sin? That is the mind of Christ. But friends, 
if we're honest with ourselves, the type of Christianity that we often live, the type of Christianity that we so often see is entirely different. Our Christianity is often entirely selfish. What's in it for me? Why should I come to your church? What do I get? You know, if, if your church expects me to pay tithe, you know, I think I expect some better customer service. <laughs> your greeters better be friendlier than that if you expect me to pay my tithe to your church. We think of Christianity as, as a vending machine. What do I have to do? What do I have to give? And what do I get in return? What is the least amount I can do and still make it into heaven? You ever heard that line? It's not a salvational issue. That's not a salvational issue. I mean, don't be so legalistic. I mean, it doesn't really matter. God will understand. We have this concept in our Christianity that we can just shop for Christianity. Whichever one, we get the best return for the lowest price. That's the kind of Christianity we're going to live. Oh, God will understand. He's not going to keep me out of heaven just because I, I do this once or twice. I mean, God is big enough. I mean, he's not going to just, he's not sitting up there. He's not, he, not going to keep me out of heaven because of that. What kind of attitude are we demonstrating? We're demonstrating that Christianity for us is some magic potion, some, some activity that we, we, we say the magic words, we wave the magic wand, and somehow God has to give us stuff. How can God allow me to go through this? Doesn't he know what I've done for him? We expect our Christianity to be God I'll give you this much. Now, what will you give me? And sometimes we say, oh, it's all about the relationship. I'm friends with God. <laughs> Jesus loves me. I love Jesus. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God will understand. It is a relationship. What kind of relationship? What example have we in the Bible of the appropriate type of relationship with God? Jesus! What is the kind of relationship we ought to have with God? Not my will, but thine be done. That's the kind of relationship we ought to have with God. Amen. I love it how Randy Skeet puts it. The only way to get along with God is to do exactly what he says. <laughs> that's the kind of relationship that we need to have with God. Because that is the type of relationship Jesus had with God. And he is our example in all things. John the Baptist was a man of God. He was born with the Holy Ghost since his birth. And if any man could have, could have lived the life and demanded things of God, perhaps it was John the Baptist. He was faithful, as far as we can tell. But when we look at his life 
some scholars say his ministry lasted approximately six months. Six months. Could John the Baptist have been sitting in the dungeon thinking, Lord, I've given everything to you. I don't deserve this. What, what, what are you doing to me, God? I would venture to say for most of us, if we were in his situation, that's exactly what we would think. God, we have done so much for you. How could you do this to us? But that kind of thinking is selfish. I'm thankful that John did not think that way. If you read in the chapter in Desire of Ages that recount that story, it tells us to suffer with Christ in the most weighty trust and the highest honor. How can God do this to me? Sometimes we think, yes, we read this verse, resist unto blood, striving against sin. Yes, someday, Revelation 13 tells us there will be a worldwide decree, mark of the beast, no man might buy or sell, and that he that hath not the mark of the beast, eventually he will be put to death. I will die for Jesus then. But we're not willing to give up even the small areas of our lives to him now. We're not even willing to die for him now. And we think we can die for him then. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. But I would be failing you if I did not shoot straight with you. The Christian life, yes, there are blessings. I don't want to discount that. Jesus does promise comfort peace that passes all understanding, joy. He does promise those things, but it doesn't remove the fact, the reality that the Christian life is one that is marked with great difficulties and trials. And what does it really take? This is what Mrs. White tells us. Testimonies to the Church, Volume 5, page 222. The Christian life is a warfare. The Apostle Paul speaks of wrestling against principalities and powers as he fought the good fight of faith. Again, he declares, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Ah, no. Today, sin is cherished and excused. The sharp sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, does not cut to the soul. Has religion changed? Has Satan's enmity to God abated? A religious life once presented difficulties and demanded self-denial, but all is made very easy now. And why is this? The professed people of God have compromised with the power of darkness. There must be a revival of the straight testimony. The path to heaven is no smoother now than in the days of our Savior. All our sins must be put away. Every darling indulgence that hinders our religious life must be cut off. The right eye, 
or the right hand must be sacrificed if it caused us to offend? Are we willing to renounce our own wisdom and to receive the kingdom of heaven as a little child? Are we willing to part with self-righteousness? Are we willing to give up our chosen worldly associates? Are we willing to sacrifice the approbation of men? The prize of eternal life is of infinite value. Will we put forth efforts and make sacrifices proportionate to the worth of the object to be attained? That brings our mind back to the message we heard in the divine hour. The value of something is determined by how much we're willing to pay for it. And how much are we willing to pay for Jesus? We have heard eloquently stated today how much he paid for us. He paid everything for us. He risked everything for us. But what do we risk? What do we pay for him? Too often, nothing. Too often, we look at God as Santa Claus in the sky and we say, I said, the, I said my prayers. God doesn't hear my prayers. I've already did, I've done all the things that I need to do, but God, He's not helping me. No. The question is, are we willing to make that effort, the sacrifice that reveals how much we value Jesus and His will in our lives? Every darling indulgence that hinders our religious life must be cut off. Just think. Jesus wrestled with temptation to the point that blood dripped from his pores. How many of us have wrestled with temptation like that? How many of us have experienced that kind of soul anguish over sin? Too often sin just sort of waltzes into our lives and we have a little affair with them, a one-night stand, and then the next day we ask for forgiveness. We have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And why did Jesus suffer that? Because he cared so much for the will of God. Desire of Ages, page 439. When we see Jesus, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, working to save the lost, slighted, scorned, derided, driven from city to city till his mission was accomplished, when we behold him in Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood, and on the cross, dying in agony, when we see this, self will no longer clamor to be recognized. Looking unto Jesus, we shall be ashamed of our coldness, our lethargy, our self-seeking. We will be willing to be anything or nothing so that we may do heart service for the Master. We shall rejoice to bear the cross after Jesus to endure trial, shame, or persecution for his dear sake the mind of Christ. 
the mind of Christ, to be willing to be anything, to be willing to be nothing if it means carrying out the will of God. That is the mind of Christ. Consider him, lest we be weary and faint in our minds. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What has he gone through for us? What example has he left for us? The example is he, 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 he resisted unto blood, striving against sin. He was willing to sacrifice even when the will of God demanded that he lose everything. Are there people in the world that will fulfill this description? Is it even possible? Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Let's read from verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And notice, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus that was shed on their behalf and by the word of their testimony. The experience that they lived with Jesus and finally, and they loved not their lives unto the death. They are willing to be obedient unto death, to resist unto blood, if you will. But why? How can they do that? Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. What is needed in order for us to run and to finish the race in Hebrews 12? Patience. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. There will be a group of individuals, friends, who would rather die than to walk one inch off the path of God's will even if God's will is not necessarily to give up sins, even if it is simply to lay off the weights that slow us down, even if it means sacrificing so much that we have to incur the wrath of God, to suffer through the time of trouble as though God was our enemy. That is the level of obedience of commitment, of absolute loyalty to God that is needed. Men and women who are willing to resist unto blood, striving against sin. We are about to close with an appeal. But before the appeal, I want to share with you one final quote from First Selected Messages, page 135, paragraph 3. But I said unto you that ye have also seen me and believe not. John 6, 36. 
This has been literally fulfilled in the cases of many. For the Lord gave them a deeper insight to the truth, into his character of mercy and compassion and love. This weekend, have we had deeper insights into the truth of God's character? I believe so. And she goes on and says, And yet, after being thus enlightened, they have turned from him in unbelief. They saw the deep movings of the Spirit of God. And I hope we have seen that this weekend. But when the insidious temptations of Satan came in, as they always will come after a season of revival, they did not resist unto blood striving against him. And those who might have stood on vantage ground had they made right use of the precious enlightenment they had had were overcome by the enemy. They should have reflected the light that God gave to them upon the souls of others. They should have worked and acted in harmony with the sacred revealings of the Holy Spirit and in not doing so they suffered loss. I believe this passage speaks directly to us this weekend. We have spent the whole weekend contemplating the character of Jesus, the character of God. We have had deeper insights. We have seen the deep movings of the Spirit of God. We are forewarned. The insidious temptations of Satan will surely come in as it does after every revival. And what is the only way for us to stand on vantage ground? The only way for us to resist and to overcome? Resist unto blood, striving against sin. We can't do this on our own. And that is why Jesus was made in the likeness of men, being tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, so he can be a merciful high priest, so he can succor us who are tempted. So the appeal tonight, two appeals. I know that in an audience of this size, there are those of us who struggle. Struggle with sin. Real sin. And I don't say this, and I don't claim to be any superior than any individual in this tent. Because I am not. I know how vile and evil and wicked I am. But standing on behalf of God, I have to make this appeal. How many of you here want to run this race with patience and you realize that you are not running anywhere at all because you have sins that are tying you down? Addictions, perhaps. Things that you are doing that God has told you not to do. Or you are not doing things that God expressly has told us that we should do. Perhaps it is activities or a frame of mind or possessions or whatever it is. We need to lay aside those sins. Cut it off. Pluck out the right eye. Cut off the right hand. There's no more time to mess around. How many of you have those sins that you want to say, Lord Jesus, I give those sins to you. Tonight, I give them to you. God bless you, those who are raising your hands. 
Jesus is not looking down from heaven saying, oh, it's about time. That's not what he's thinking. He's looking at you in merciful pity, with joy perhaps in his eyes, my child, come home. And I know that all too often we get so discouraged because we go home and we realize I'm no different. My house is the same. My room is the same. My friends are the same. I have no power to overcome. You do have power to overcome in Jesus. Amen. Second appeal. This one is a little bit more tricky. It's about those weights. Some of us are carrying around a lot of dead weight. We see the finish line, but we can't make our legs move very fast. There, these might not be sinful things in your lives, but they're not God's will for you. They are not the best. It may be a certain occupation that you're in. It may be a certain group of friends that you have. It may be some decision that you have made that is holding you up in being everything that Jesus wants you to be. It may be an area of your life that nobody knows and a preacher can never even guess what it is, but you know what it is and Jesus knows what it is and Jesus says, lay aside those weights. As a Christian, in this hour of earth's history, we have to finish this race. In our generation, that's, that we just have to. How many of you have weights in your lives? You know what they are. I don't know what they are. God sees your hands. God sees your hands. He may be asking you to even sacrifice something that he gave to you. Something that is so good, like Isaac was to Abraham. Are you willing to even give that to God? If he, if he requires it? That is the level of surrender we need, my friends. That is the mind of Christ. General appeal now. How many of us here tonight want to say, I commit my life to Jesus? We commit to Him. And I'm going to leave this place and do everything in my power to resist and to blood by Jesus' help, yes, but also to spread this gospel to my friends, my family, my colleagues, my neighbors, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. I invite you to stand. Let's pray. Father, tonight, I have felt my utter weakness and inadequacy in communicating this message. And Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. But Lord, for the sake of your name's glory and honor, for the sake of your people, may your spirit drive this message home. May you walk with us tonight in the cool evening air 
as we lay our heads down on our pillow, may your Holy Spirit continue to convict us. And may the grace of Jesus fill us and strengthen us that we may resist unto blood, striving against the sins in our lives. And Father, may we have a greater quality, a more pure quality of faith. We are too selfish, too selfish. We ask so much from you, but we give you so little in return. Lord, we are through with that kind of Christianity. We want to live 100% entirely sold out for you because that's how much you are worth to us. We know that nothing we give, even if we give everything, even if we give our lives, it is not anywhere near how valuable you truly are. But that's all we can do. And we're so thankful that you accept that. And Lord Jesus, we have stood tonight to confirm, recommit our lives to you. But in the hearts of these people in this tent, some have raised their hands, crying out for help from the throne of grace to overcome those besetting sins. The habits that enchain them and ensnare them and prevent them from running the race that is set before us. Oh Lord, please. We know this is a prayer that you cannot, you will not ignore the prayer of help from one of your saints. Please, Lord, strengthen us as we leave this mountain, as we face the onslaught of the enemy. May we be as Jesus, committed fully to accomplishing your will, no matter what it costs to us. And some of us, we have weights dead weights that are slowing us down. And we know it. And we have resisted. We have rationalized. We have said it's not a moral issue. We have said it is no big deal. But Lord, tonight we realize it is a big deal. We realize that we have been selfish. And we want to lay aside those weights. We want to choose only your best for us. Even if you ask us to sacrifice the Isaacs in our lives, the blessings and the good things that you have granted to us, if that is what you require from us, Lord, we're giving it to you right now. Because we know that you, you, you never ask us to give up that which is not for our best good. We trust you. We know. Because you were willing to do the same for us. And so, Father, tonight... My words can never fill the void in the human heart, but only your word can. And so may you speak that word to us as we leave this place. May it resound in our hearts and in our minds. May we be like Jesus. May we live according to those incredibly challenging words, not my will, but thine be done in every aspect, every particular of our lives. This is our prayer. And we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus, the only name whereby we can make this request. In his name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.